finally leaves the coast and then, oh, they shot it down. The excuses that were given on this were pathetic, absolutely pathetic. They told us it was too risky. Oh, it was too risky to shoot down the Chinese spy balloon. Do you know what a bunch of bullshit that is? Yeah. They said, it's three school buses. Three school buses, why? Okay, well, do you guys remember on 9-11 when an airplane crashed in Pennsylvania? A jetliner. Remember that? It didn't kill anybody on the ground. Killed everyone on board, but it didn't kill anyone on the ground. So they want to tell all of us that it was too risky to take down that Chinese spy balloon over rural Idaho or Montana or any of these other states or Alaska? They're liars. They're, you can only see it two ways. Either they're liars or they're cowards. Or our president is sold out to China. I'm going to go with our president is sold out to China on that one. But anyways, <laughs> we're starting the episode listening to Marjorie Taylor Greene somehow find a way to stoop to a new low. She kind of she kind of amazes me because every time you think this gal can't get more batshit crazy, something happens. And this is a new low for her. She's always been a 9-11 truther, a 9-11 conspiracy theorist. She harasses school shooting victims. She you know, believes in Jewish space lasers. We could go on all day. But this one was pretty unique that she basically downplayed Flight 93, which happened on 9-11. You all know the story. The passengers take over the flight and fight the terrorist who's driving the plane. It was supposed to crash into an important site, potentially the White House, and the people on board fought the terrorists and the plane crashed in a field. And it was a heroic action. Everyone died. And it probably saved thousands of more lives. Instead, she's saying, well, if that plane, no one died on the ground when that plane crashed, why couldn't we have shot down the weather balloon over Montana? And she's completely neglecting the fact that over 100 people died on that plane. But I guess that's not a big deal to her. So, oh dear. She she really manages to stoop to a new low. Um, Flight 93 crashed. Hundreds die on it. It was just pathetic. It's, it's just pathetic that she's now stooping to compare those things. And I guess it is impressive that even her audience was silent. Like, it was even a little bit too much for the people that support her. <sighs> so, anyways, we started with that. But uh, Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered from Reality podcast. Okay, so it is Wednesday. I'm sitting here looking out at the setting sun. Kind of a beautiful day here, so can't complain too much. Uh, I should just start before we get going to say that Dianne Feinstein has announced that she is not going to be running for re-election for the California Senate in, what, 2024? And it's going to be interesting because so far I've seen Katie Porter is running, and I do like Katie Porter. I think she's good at politics and she's good at questioning crazy people and she just has a good head on her shoulders and she's really smart. 
She's an Orange County congresswoman at the time, and I think the best part of her was when Kevin McCarthy was going through the ringer to become speaker. She was sitting there reading a great book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and I think it just summed up the whole thing. But anyways, she is running, and Shifty Schiff, Shifty Adam Schiff is also running, a guy who I am not as much of a fan of. I personally was reading an article in Newsweek right before I started recording, and it's about, it's basically about how... Uh, Ro Khanna should actually run for Dianne Feinstein's seat. It was a good Newsweek article by uh, Seth Moskowitz, and he's like, okay, the two Democratic representatives, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, they're fine. Also, Barbara Lee is vying for the seat as well, and he thinks each of these candidates is deeply, uh, deeply flawed, and they're trying to be political celebrities, basically. And I would agree with that. There's a lot of egos coming into this race. And he thinks Californians should basically opt for the fourth option, which would be Congressman Ro Khanna, who I'm a big, big fan of. And I think he brings up some good points in the, in the Newsweek article. He talks about, excuse me, for example, Adam Schiff is a disaster because, and I agree with this, he's not an idiot, but he boosted his political profile by repeatedly kind of over over exaggerating all of the damning evidence of collusion between Trump and R- Russia and he was saying it was a scandal the size of Watergate and he kept saying more evidence was coming out and look he was all over the talk shows he was on everything from CNN to Fox News to Bill Maher and look he he's he was never wrong that there was some sort of connection between Trump and Russia I don't think anyone is denying that but he didn't communicate well with the American people. And I think a lot of people see him as just this guy that was telling us, oh, it's coming. It's coming. And the article talks about here in quotes, Schiff's overarching problem is that he loves the power that comes from making headlines and appearing on MSNBC and CNN talk shows. And he's happy to lie about it to get it. And I think that's an interesting point. And now going on to Katie Porter, I guess you could say, even though I enjoyed the subtle art of not giving a fuck book that she was reading while Kevin McCarthy was going through the ringer, she also does seem to like popularity. And I was talking to one of my buddies who voted for her, lived in Orange County at the time. He's like, I like her politics, but her reading that book on the House floor when there's when pretty much Rome is burning at this point just seems like she's all about the optics. And look, I like what she talks about with corporate greed, corporate corruption, but... It's more like she's trying to build her brand as a fighter, and she's always quarrelsome in congressional hearings. But this Newsweek article also writes in quotes here, her central flaw is that she's more concerned with her own political prospects than with helping her constituents. And I guess she put it on a recent podcast here in quotes, I can't wait to get the heck out of Washington and back to the campaign trail. (laughs) I don't think that's what we want. Do we want someone who's just focused on the damn campaign, or do we want someone who's actually doing things for the American people? And that's just not her. And I don't know as much about Barbara Lee, to be completely honest, so I'm going to stay out of this. But the thing with... The, I, I think the key here is that this Newsweek article brings up another good point, is that if Democrats are going to call the Republicans who objected to the 2020 election a threat to democracy, they should be consistent. And they should have people come in that can actually prove a case for why Democrats are the party of choice. And Ro Khanna is, in my opinion, someone like that. He's a progressive, much more progressive than me. He He's definitely more of a Bernie guy. He supports Medicare for all, free public college, universal child daycare. But where I really agree with him, and I think he could really appeal to a lot of populists and pro- 
progressives and independents and maybe even some Trump supporters is that he promotes kind of this economic patriotism. And I encourage you guys to go back and listen to a podcast. Oh, I probably did about a year ago on him where he basically talks about kind of doing some sort of economic boom in places like Kansas and West Virginia, Virginia, sorry, and Arkansas, where he wants to pretty much bring the tech sector and the manufacturing jobs that are needed for the tech sector to places that are being left behind, like West Virginia. And he wants to revitalize basically domestic manufacturing and production. And that's a message that could work. And, you know, he represents Silicon Valley, one of the wealthiest districts in, in the country. And, He's different. He criticizes Democrats. He criticizes progressives. As I talked about, he was one of the only ones who was criticizing Pete Buttigieg and the Department of Transportation after all the flight chaos during the holidays. And he's also willing to go on Fox News. And I think that is huge. He's also willing to try to appeal back to rural voters who have fled the Democratic Party. And he, he's just a straight shooter. And so he's not as worried about the optics. He's worried about talking. And even, you know, with the Twitter files, which I refuse to talk about much on this podcast, he has actually expressed concern, though, about what Twitter is doing in violating the First Amendment. And he was against the New York Post suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop, which I think is interesting. And I think Newsweek sums him up very well. It says, Kana may be to my left ideologically, but we share the same fundamental values of pluralism, honesty, and free speech. And... Yeah, I just wanted to start with that because we're going to see a pretty interesting primary season and then election for this Senate seat. And I don't think he would be stupid if Ro Khanna got into it. But, of course, we can't have nice things, as I always say, so he probably won't. Before we get into the main topics, I also thought it would be a good idea to give a good update on our great friend, George Santos. And he has a new scandal. Like I said, there's about a scandal or two a week. And this one involves a Pennsylvania situation in which he took advantage of some Amish people, apparently, allegedly. And according to The Guardian, in this case, in Amish country, he wrote over $15,000 in bad checks to buy puppies from the Amish. And then he set up some sort of fund to then sell the puppies to people that wanted to give them homes. <laughs> Basically, this is a long way of saying that he stole puppies from the Amish and then resold them to other people. So this is the guy, you know, who took money from veterans and the guy had to put his dog down because George Santos took money from him and the pet fund wasn't fixed. This is the guy who said his mom died in 9-11. You know, he's, he's really a character. But the best part here is that the people who he screwed over have provided receipts. They've provided the checks. And I'm just curious how... <sighs> Santos gets through all of this. Anyways, the main reason, because like I said, the scandals are just always constantly happening, but I wanted to mainly mention is that it looks like he is still considering running for re-election in 2024, which is fascinating. It's definitely bold, to say the least. CNN has an article from this morning that discusses in quotes here, after previously signaling to Republicans he wouldn't seek re-election, Santos has recently been telling people he is considering running for a second term. That's according to multiple Republican sources. And he privately insists he will ultimately be cleared of all wrongdoing and that his treasurer will face scrutiny over his finances. Look, the finances are one thing. Who knows? Maybe his treasurer is responsible. I mean, I don't think that's the case, but I guess there's time to see. 
But also, I don't know if he's going to get cleared from all the lies because it seems like every day someone that knew him is coming out with a new lie and they have the receipts a lot of the time. But I guess in a sense, he kind of has been vindicated already because the House Republicans haven't done enough to stop him early on. It's kind of like the Trump thing all over again, is that you don't, if, if you don't stop the crazy narcissistic liar early on, then they kind of get emboldened. And it does seem to me like Santos is emboldened. And he's also tweeted in quotes here, let me be very clear, I'm not leaving, I'm not hiding, and I'm not backing down. I will continue to work for New York 3, and no amount of Twitter trolling will stop me. I'm looking forward to getting what needs to be done, done. I don't know if he's done anything yet, to be honest, so I don't know what he's talking about. I keep seeing videos of his own constituents, like, screaming at him to be resigning. So, I don't know what he's actually getting done. Looks like he's got some work done on his face, but other than that, I mean, Katara, or whatever his name was when he was a drag queen, he's done that, too. He gets those things done. He's good at stealing from people, but I don't know if he's actually done anything for his district, but things are interesting because... (laughs) The Federal Election Commission actually asked Santos last week to announce whether he plans to run again in 2024. At the time, he declined. But I think there's a reason why they're specifically asking him if he's going to run again, because as I mentioned a few weeks ago, he was definitely doing less than legal things um, involving campaign finance law. So it's a shady dude. And the thing here, too, is that CNN also in that same article talks about how a lot of Republicans in New York that are up for re-election in 2024 are really trying to get him to resign or get rid of him or find a way to oust him because it's going to make them look bad. And when they're running for re-election, they're going to be in the hot seat about how much they knew and when they knew it and were they friends with him and blah, blah, blah. And the CNN article writes here, a pair of House Democrats, in quotes, introduced a resolution last week to expel Santos, which would require a two-thirds majority from the House. Multiple New York Republicans, including freshman representative Nick LaLota, said they would vote for such a measure. And it's probably good for them politically. I'm, I mean, I'll move on, but I'll I'll just add that I'm kind of curious about how this guy could even run and win again, because he lied to his district. They all kind of hate him now. And now he wants to run again. Like, it's clearly this guy just gets off on all this. He just gets off on lying. And this, this guy is not just like a far right extremist. This guy, there's like clearly something not well with him just because he always jumps to pathological lying every time he gets in a tough situation. Like there is something wrong with this guy and hopefully they oust him. But I think the Republicans, like every other thing they've had to do recently, had a chance and they failed. Moving on for a little bit, I also just wanted to talk about some reports involving our flying unidentified object, our UAP, our UFO, our spy balloon, whatever you want to call these three objects. And the Times this morning, the New York Times, that is, for my LA friends, the New York Times from this, from this morning discusses how, in quotes, the three unidentified flying objects recently shot down may be harmless. Also, investigators have not yet found evidence that they were tied to Chinese surveillance. Here's the thing with that quote. They're not, they're not dangerous. They're also not from the Chinese. Where are they coming from, then? Have they just been up there? Like, how are they flying? Who's doing it? Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to sound like the conspiracy theorist here, but then what are they? And while this all probably is true from everything I've read... I think this report 
And this headline just deepen the mystery and complicate things. Because if they aren't harmful, then are they weather balloons? And if they are weather balloons, why? But they couldn't be our weather balloons because we keep track of our weather balloons and they would have to be FAA registered. So then it gets into like, what the hell are these things? And I read a piece in NBC News that brings up some interesting points. And again, this is not like Breitbart or Infowars. It's, it's NBC News. And it brings up some points that I think are worth sharing. The article is by Denise Chow. And it basically discusses that if these were weather balloons, they probably weren't ours, and that complicates things. Chow writes in quotes here, The White House said Tuesday that the intelligence community is considering the possibility that they are being used for, com for commercial or benign purposes. But that explanation further deepens the enigma and raises questions about what exactly the objects were used for. Experts say it's unlikely that weather or scientific balloons would stray off course or operated unnoticed for long periods of time. End quotes. And I think that's something pretty interesting and confusing, in a sense. And furthermore, Chow argues that weather balloons are usually tracked almost always by government agencies. And these obviously were not because we just randomly detected them out of the blue. And there's another article that discusses in quotes here, the National Weather Service on Tuesday confirmed to NBC News that none of the objects shot down in recent days belong to the agency. Also, in the same article, it says in quotes, Kevin Tucker, president of the Oregon-based aerospace company Nearspace Corporation, said that high-altitude balloons used for science are typically well-tracked and follow strict FAA protocols. Tucker also notes that there was almost zero chance of such a balloon getting lost or drifting so far off course as to cause a national security incident. And that makes sense, right? I mean, we, we kind of are good at knowing these things. And Another interesting point about this is that most weather balloons are actually usually higher. And I'm not just pulling numbers out of my ass. This is what I've got from the National Center for At Atmospheric Research in Colorado. Apparently, they usually fly between 70 to 80,000 feet. Not like these objects, which were quite low, between like 20 and 40,000 feet. There's this guy, Holger Wummel, who's a senior scientist at the National Center for, uh, for Atmospheric Research. He said that these balloons usually don't last long. And that comes into conflict or contrast, whatever you want to say, with what we're seeing with these ones, because these three unidentified objects have lasted quite a while, apparently. And Vumel says in quotes here, these balloons go up. They last somewhere around two hours. They burst. The instruments fall back down to the ground, and that's it. So that's it, right? And then Susan Buchanan, who's a National Weather Service spokesperson, said the agency flew a weather balloon, for example, from Nome, Alaska on Friday but it popped and fell 30 miles northeast of where it landed. Another balloon was uh, flown from Fairbanks on Friday, but popped and fell 35 miles northwest. So those, to me, are interesting insights, is that these things go up, do something quick, and get some information, and then go down pretty quickly, too. And it's interesting to me because I keep seeing weather balloon, weather balloon, weather balloon as a more accepted narrative. But from my information... If they are weather balloons, then they probably aren't coming from these organizations, and they're then then we don't know where they're coming from, right? Because they must be FAA cleared, they must go relatively short distances, and they fly higher than aircrafts. Aircrafts, and since they're FAA cleared, their location will be known at times. So it seems to me like these objects were not weather balloons, and the experts like Vumel do agree. He says 
in, in this article I was reading, back to the NBC article, he says the only way these could be weather balloons is if they were used by some private hobbyist or some unknown actor. But he said still, even if that was the case, I still don't think they're weather balloons. So I don't know if that's very promising. And while there is limited information out, out now about this, but I did a deep dive into something that I do want to talk about next. And I think there could, and I'm going to repeat, could be some interesting things going on here. And what I mean is that there is some speculation that these balloons or objects or weather balloons or UFOs or alien crafts, whatever you want to call them, are coming from Russia or at least some Russian-Chinese coordination. And maybe at first that sounds kind of silly, but if you think about it for a moment, it's really not out of the realm of reality. And I'll get into some news reports in a moment actually coming out of Ukraine about Russian balloons. But at first we know that... A lot of experts think that, think that these objects are not government or American objects because if they were, we would know their location, right? Also, the New York Times had a good piece earlier today about how we have not found any indication that these are spy balloons, like those from China earlier. What I mean, the big balloon. Because we have to remember that the big three-bus-sized one that we shot down over the Atlantic Ocean... That one clearly was Chinese. You could see by the Chinese response. But now the last three, the Chinese are acting a little bit differently about. Also, if you look at the flight trajectory, or if you even look at a map and where these all were shot down and came from, it seems like all of these objects have originated somewhere west of Alaska. So over the Bering Strait, potentially. Which, if you look on a map, would pinpoint it in Asia. More specifically, northern that northern part of the continent, which is Russia. And... I watched an interview yesterday with Gordon Chang on Jake Tapper's What State of the Union show, I think it's called on CNN, and he's a columnist, wrote a lot of books about China, he's definitely a China hawk. I don't actually usually agree with him on much, so I'm taking all of the things he's, he's said with, uh, with a grain of salt here, because he's definitely like kind of a, he's kind of become a reactionary on the right, in my opinion, or at least the stuff he says. He definitely is no fan of the Biden administration, and he's definitely biased towards China, but he does at least have some credibility in talking about these issues. Now, if he was talking about the elections or Trump, I probably wouldn't listen to him. But he kind of knows what he's talking about. So anyways, he believes that these objects may be coming from Russia as part of a coordinated effort with China to either distract, divide, or cripple U.S. information and political order in the United States. Kind of just, I mean, again, like stuff I've talked about on this podcast before, the fire hose of falsehood. Right? Just throw a lot of shit at the system and confuse people so they kind of eat themselves. And look at America for the last couple of days. We're, we're debating this balloon, right? And if he is correct, Gordon Chang basically worries that this is kind of the beginning of a new joint effort between the two countries. And, you know, if you think about it, the Russians have always been really involved in interference or at least flooding the system, Right? They're good at distraction and division campaigns that divide American society, polarize us, and distract us from bigger issues, right? Think about what they've done to meddle in our elections. And like I said, just flood our social media with shit and chaos. Like they were involved in starting a Black Lives Matter protest across the street from a Christian protest. Like they're really good at these type of things. And even if these balloons are harmless, 
they've done a great job of causing us, everyone from the media to politicians to the average people to even people like me, because I'm talking about it right now, to speculate. And we sure have not heard much about Ukraine in the news. It's all balloons, balloons, balloons. And I'm not one of the ones who's like, this is a government inside job to distract from what's happening in Ohio or whatever else. I don't think this is the Biden administration's doing, but it's interesting just to think about like why these things are showing up out of nowhere. Now, what I've said is just a theory, but the interesting part though is that there are growing reports out of Ukraine that the Russians are using balloons there to distract them and literally cause confusion for the Ukrainian forces. Not kind of a political rhetoric confusion, but like physical confusion. So the Financial Times has an article out today that discusses in quotes, Ukraine has accused Russia of turning to balloon power to support its invasion of the country. Although with markedly different aims from China's alleged intelligence gathering operations, Moscow has begun launching aerial objects with the intention of tricking Ukraine's air defenses into firing surface-to-air missiles and exhausting valuable supplies. On Tuesday, according to Kiev, suspected balloons that flew over Ukraine were detected in Romanian and Moldovan airspace, and that prompted Bucharest to scramble jets. And I guess going a little bit further, from my understanding, since the United States has noticed these objects and obviously shot down that giant spy balloon from the Chinese, the Romanians, Moldovans, and Ukrainians have seen an increased amount of these objects that have either deflected radar or caused air defenses to basically shoot at them. And they've downed a lot of these. I mean, I think dozens by now. And the interesting thing is, is that to go even further, Jean Stolenberg, who is the NATO Secretary General, has warned officially that China and Russia are increasing their intelligence and surveillance activities. And he directly said this includes the usage of balloons. So again, I don't want to be like, oh, this is some deep like secret plot by aliens or by Russians or whatnot. But if you really try to think about the most simple solution here is there's a growing global conflict going on right now. And all of a sudden, when NATO's secretary general warns about the Russians and Chinese using balloons more often, it's kind of a weird coincidence that now we're seeing all these random objects showing up in North America when we are considered an adversary by the Russians. So again, we don't know for, for sure yet because again, we haven't gotten any, any information. And I personally do think that the U.S. government and especially the Biden administration does need to hold some form of a press conference or some briefing to the public soon because the speculation is not good and it would be good to at least have some some idea, I guess, of what's happening. And now staying on the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, by the way, next week will mark a year. I know, time is crazy. Time is a flat circle. But the timing is also interesting with all this happening because two days ago, yeah, I think it was two days ago, Monday, yeah, I was reading a pre uh, like about a pretty worrying warning that the U.S. Department of State put out about Americans living in Russia. And it was more specifically the, Mos the, the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And basically the State Department told its citizens to leave Russia immediately. And this was the first time they used, you must leave immediately. Usually it was like, could be dangerous. We recommend leaving. It was kind of the usual State Department jargon. Like when I was in uh, when I was in Morocco and Algeria, sometimes you got similar statements like, 
you know, there was a protest in southern Morocco or there was some political violence there, we recommend avoiding the area. But it wasn't like, do not go to Morocco or if you're there, leave immediately. Something quite different. And the obvious cause, of course, is the war in Ukraine and the risk of arbitrary arrest or harassment by law enforcement agencies in Russia, right? I would imagine if you're an American living in Moscow right now or anywhere, to be frank, probably not a great situation. And I'll read the entire statement now because, like I said, it's probably the most dire and troubling so far. And it brings me to wonder if they have information on something, like a political situation getting worse, ramifications of the new Russian offensive that we keep hearing about, something along those lines. And so the the embassy said in a statement here in quotes, U.S. citizens residing or traveling in Russia should depart immediately. Exercise increased caution due to the risk of wrongful detentions. Do not travel to Russia, it also added. Then it went on to say, Russian security services have arrested U.S. citizens on spurious charges, singled out U.S. citizens in Russia for detention, denied them fair and transparent treatment, and convicted them in secret trials or without presenting credible evidence. Now, they've kind of been doing this for a while, and it might just be the State Department really taking a firm grasp of this situation. And... Of course, the Kremlin, though, on the other side, has been quick to point out that this is not new for the State Department, right? Something I mentioned earlier. And of course, it's not new to warn people to not stay in a country that's hostile to the citizens. So it's not new for the State Department to warn Americans to leave the country. But the Kremlin has said this is not a new thing, and they've downplayed it and said it's just reactionaryism from Americans. And Dmitry Peskov is the Kremlin spokesman who's kind of been saying the State Department's overreacting. I don't think they're overreacting. I I sure as hell wouldn't want to be there. And of course, they're going to downplay it, right? But that being said, again, this is a different, different layer of warning than ones we've seen previously. And this does just tell me that they must know something bad is going to happen. They must, maybe there's going to be a new purge of dissidents. Or that another draft is coming, right? And dual citizens may be forced to join the military. Because conscription has been a major issue. And we know that the Russians are going to... It seems like they're just going to keep throwing bodies at this. And I also can't help but think that... They also may fear that Americans in Moscow may be taken as a new hostage, right? Like, maybe there's also that there. Is they don't want any more political or human rights leverage in, in, in reality. And Reuters has an article on this that kind of gets into this idea a little bit. It writes here in quotes, The Federal Security Service, the FSB, which is kind of like the revitalized KGB, said in January that prosecutors had opened up a criminal case against a United States citizen on suspicion of espionage. Also, last December, U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner was released in a prison swap. We also have to talk about Whelan, for example. But, you know, Griner's out... Maybe as the Russians get more desperate, they need a new set of bodies to try to force the U.S. government to do something or get them something in return. Again, like that, that would kind of be the most simple explanation is that the U.S. is worried about Russia taking more hostages. And so if you're an American, you're an easy target. So get the hell out. And I've seen the French embassy has released a similar statement over the last week. So clearly there's heightened concerns coming from, you know, different government entities like throughout the West. And of course, it's a fitting time because there's reports of Russia's offensive growing. Of course, we're about a year away from the anniversary of this bloodbath. And 
you have to think something's coming, right? And the, the Wall Street Journal writes here in quotes, Western officials said Russia was tightening its noose around the contested city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine as the NATO, sorry, as the NATO, as NATO warned the start of a major new Russian offensive was now underway. Apparently, the offensive is looking intense enough, though, that there are reports that Ukraine's military has actually barred aid workers and journalists from even entering Bakhmut without special permission granted in advance. And this is because the fighting in the area has intensified and civilians are at risk of getting hurt. And this marks, I think, kind of an interesting point of, like, what happens on both sides here? Do the... Do the Ukrainians keep standing up strong, or do we start to see something flip in the other direction? And then, at the same time, the Moldovan government has actually been accusing the Russians, specifically the Kremlin, of basically trying to stage a coup inside of Moldova. And I've been kind of following this pretty closely, because I've talked previously on the podcast, as you have uh, Transnistria, which is in the east of the country, which is a breakaway region, which kind of similar to Crimea, in a sense. You also have Gagwaitia, which is also a Russian-speaking region, and so the Russians would clearly like to be involved in that, for sure. And the Wall Street Journal, in that same article, writes that, in quotes, Meanwhile, the Russian government on Tuesday denied claims that it's seeking to foment a coup in the neighboring Moldova, a part of which has been occupied by Moscow since the early 1990s. And, of course, the Russians are denying this, but sorry knocked something there but my assumption would be that if this conflict continues the russians are going to need to find new avenues for success and one of them probably could be a puppet government government in moldova you also see them now using balloons in ukraine if the reports are correct and from everything i've seen they do seem to be correct and then at the same time you have the state department warning that americans need to get the f out so so to me we're at an interesting turning point and I just don't think there's a coincidence that we're in a very heightened sense of global conflict and we're starting to find these weird objects floating around in our atmosphere. So I'm not one of the people who's like, it's extraterrestrials, it's aliens. I'm assuming it's probably a foreign adversary who is either trying to just distract us or has something intentional going on. And again, this is mere speculation, but it's also speculation while following what's happening and reading reports out of both parts of the world and just trying to put the pieces together. So interesting stuff. The last thing I will say, a completely different subject before we're out of here, is that it's going to be important who the next president is, right, for how this conflict continues. Do we still stick with Ukraine, or do we have someone like Trump, who now claims to be a dove, which is just an insane thing, like Trump's going to be the dove in the Ukraine thing? No, he's not. Hell no, he's not. Trump has always been a guy who is... How do I put this? Trump is like the bully who likes to act strong, but then he kind of like bends over backwards for the bully who is bigger than him. And I think that's why he's always looked up to people like Xi, President Xi of China, or Bolsonaro in Brazil, or Vladimir Putin in Russia. Like Trump's a big talker and he's a bully to people smaller than them. But once there's someone bigger than him, or more mean and evil than him, he kowtows automatically to them. And in this case, Trump being a dove is not a correct way to put this. Trump would just end the war because he looks up to Putin and he's like mini-me to the main bad guy here, right? Like, he's not going to end the war. He would just give concessions to Putin to make 
the conflict end for political reasons in the United States while the Ukrainian people still suffer. And the reason I say this is because who who is president next, I think, will be very, 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 very important for this. And Nikki Haley, who is so far the only one running against Trump, has kind of been off to a bad start because I, I saw a video earlier this morning and it kind of blew my mind because yesterday I mentioned that she was the governor who took down the Confederate statues and flags in South Carolina. And then there's there's now a recording of her meeting with, I think it's the Sons of the Confederate Soldiers. It's kind of like a group that, it's kind of like a veterans club for the deceased Confederate soldiers that kind of glamorizes and retcons the Civil War. And she's on tape, which I encourage people to look this up. She's on tape basically saying that, you know, the Confederate flag means more than just slavery. It's states' rights. She's telling them it'd be okay if we had, like, a history day to commemorate the Confederacy. And she's kind of admitting that it's an important part of South Carolinian history. And, I mean, there's so many things to say. Like, we could do a whole podcast on all of this. But I I will just say that it's a states' rights thing. That was something when I was a, you know, high schooler I heard people say, and I believed it. But when you think about it, it was just a state's right to legally have slaves. So it was about slavery. It wasn't like they were debating other states' rights. Slavery was the only reason they were actually debating the states' rights. So slavery is kind of important to that conversation. So I've always thought that was crazy. And it's just kind of interesting to me is because she is she is someone who's multiracial and grew up in the South and probably would not be a supporter of the Confederate system. Right. And so it's just interesting that you see her also saying, well, it'd be okay if we had a day to commemorate the Confederacy or Confederate soldiers. I understand that a lot of people in the Confederacy lost loved ones and it was a war and a cause for a lot of people. And it was about creating a system that protected the status quo where white people were always above someone in the South. But to have a like Confederate History Day or something is insane. And to hear her kind of kowtowing to these groups was kind of insane to me. And for as crazy as Trump is, he's never even been so vocally supportive of that type of stuff. So it's going to be interesting to see how she does. But she's not off to a good start. And her not being off to a good start means that, you know, it's still going to be a battle between Trump and DeSantis. And I I honestly don't think Trump or DeSantis would be good for Ukraine. And they would be good for the country in general. And uh, Damon Linker, I recommend, he has a good piece about how he's anti-woke, which I am as well. But he also discusses how what Ron DeSantis and Trump want to do. It's really not going to stop the wokeism. Usually the woke stuff just kind of fizzles out on its own. And instead, these guys want to use state power to basically bring another opinion into submission. And that is more autocracy and, dare I say it, kind of fascist-leaning tendencies. And so that's why when people go like, Alex, well, you're, you're on the right or you're kind of center-right or just centrist in general, why would you not maybe support someone like DeSantis? Because you, you are against the political correctness. You're not a big fan of the DEI stuff. And I always say, because I don't think the government should be just completely silencing these things either way. Like I, on the podcast, I, I criticize it. But the way people like DeSantis and Trump and a lot of the other Republicans now want to do it is authoritarian and suppressive of ideas. And that usually leads to violence and othering of groups in society, and I've never been for that. 
And Damon Linker kind of seems to agree with that. He's like, I'm anti-woke, but I'm also never going to vote for DeSantis as an answer to this. And I think it's a good point. Damon Linker is great. Used to write for The Week, now writes for The Bulwark. I will stop ranting here, but anyways, thank you guys for listening. You can find me back on Apple Podcasts. We're back on there. You can also find me on Twitter, YouTube, Podbean, you know, whatever else there is. Spotify, I'm probably missing some stuff, but it's getting late and I'm tired. So take care. Adios.